Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Minna Zalman Proctor. Her book is called Landslide True Stories. It's a collection of autobiographical essays that is just out from Catapult, and I am delighted to see you again, Minna. Thank you. It's nice to see you, too. Thank you for having me. So one of the first things that I want to talk about is, because this is a collection of autobiographical essays, to talk about, as a writer, that practical decision that, you know, I'm going to write autobiographical essays rather than a quote-unquote memoir, like a, a single sort of like through-line narrative. Sure. Mm -hmm. Why the, why short form instead mm -hmm. of a big long piece? Yeah. I think that there are three or four different reasons, as with all giant projects, that there are a lot of there were a lot of factors feeding into it. Probably the most important reason formally is the book is dedicated to my mother. It's a lot about my mother. She was a composer, and she wrote. She wrote chamber music. She wrote short, small pieces, and one of the things that people say about her work is that it was incredibly concise, and musicians say that her work can be described as sort of containing worlds in very, very simple single notes. So in many respects, I am paying tribute to her form by working in a short form. She didn't write big orchestra pieces. She didn't write 40-minute pieces. So I think of this shape as sort of belonging to her or having an affinity with her music, and she's my subject. So that's a really important formal element. And then there are the practical writerly things. I wrote a lot of this book in the interstices between reading, between raising children and teaching, and the short pieces were things that I could manage in the space. And then once the short pieces began coming together and um, I began understanding them as part of a book. Right, That that's a question there, that it's like, yeah. so it sounds like, you know, you get an opportunity to write one piece and you do that and you get an opportunity to write another piece and you do that. And then all of a sudden you're, th you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm circling around a theme here. Yeah, I I think that that is more or less what happened, and I probably described it to myself several different ways before I understood what part of it was a book. I never imagined that I would come that I would write a book that was shaped this way. I didn't come into the project thinking, oh, I want to do a collection of essays. Nor at any point did I just have a collection of essays and say they'd fit together. They were written specifically one to follow the other. The order is really important. But I also knew because I had done an MFA years and years ago that you don't put together a short story collection without really knowing what you're doing. So I, I thought a lot about how I could take these small pieces that in many ways I felt like they were whole and existing together and I then I thought about how I could link them and so once I had maybe eight pieces that made up what I thought was the body of the book I began working forwards and backwards over not only the order but also how the shape the shapes of how the essays I had began and ended and how the shapes of and and what new essays I wanted to add, because I, I began thinking about the book in terms of how to link the essays, and really specifically about story arc. I tried to plot the book out as if it was a single quest, a single set of characters, and what was going to happen, and what was going to lead the reader from one essay to another, 
sometimes it can be vexing in short story collections. You, you can finish one and not need to go to the next one. And I really consciously wanted to create a collection where you felt like there was something, there was something still to be answered and still to find out and that you wanted to be pulled forward to the next essay. So it's conceived of, it's, it was built in pieces, but it's conceived of as a long piece to it. Right. And so like when you're building in pieces like that, in doing those original pieces, you might, you know, one day you're fixated on this particular moment in your history. The next day you're fixated on something that happened a little bit later. Yeah. And when you try putting them together in the collection, it's like there's an intuitive leap that in order to make sense for the reader, you sort of have to go back and connect the dots with that, with some sort of interstitial material. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there were obviously at points you might imagine I considered including interstitial material. You know, I considered writing pieces that would connect the essays. For the most part, that didn't end up being a good solution. I liked them being independent units. What was interesting is that uh, the book is in many ways about this period of time that I just couldn't stop thinking about. So, so there's a, a sort of singular set of obsessions driving the book. So each of the essays, you know, whether I was writing about an old friend in Italy or my cat when I was 12, you know, I kept feeling as if I was still searching for the same sort of, I was still trying to write about the same stuff. And so at a certain point, I started to think about the book as like a, a Rochamon portrait of my obsession. It was the different ways that I could think about the, the set of, the set of obsessions and the different ways that I could shed light on them for myself. And so the link wasn't even intuitive. It was just I couldn't write about other things. Everything seemed to feed back to the things that were concerning me. It's funny. One of the things that you end up writing about is a similar period right after your divorce. Right. When you talk about how all of a sudden you couldn't write about anything but divorce and dissolved relationships and at a point where it's like where you were finally getting opportunities presented with opportunities to write about all sorts of things and you're sitting here like incapable of moving past right what what of course was a huge upending event too right Let's, i right i couldn't write a simple book review about a dumb hanif qureshi book because it just turned into this 25 page thesis on divorce and it was completely not a book review it's um i think that it's worth noting that that period is essentially the period I would mark as when this book started. You know, that the the first essay that I wrote that is part of this book dates back 10 years. And so I've been working on it really for 10 years. So it was sort of like, I can't write about, I can't write about book review. What can I start writing about? And I did, I did get to the point where I could write about lots of other things. But when I thought about storytelling and when I thought about stories, my ideas kept evolving. So it wasn't that I was writing about divorce and the dissolution of love. I was writing it. I began thinking about narrative and conflict in terms of it. You know, how do you write about those things? How do you explain yourself? How do you find solace in a narrative. How do you, how does a story make something different if you tell it differently? So you tell the same story two different ways. What what is the emotional value of each story then, and what does that mean in a bigger sense about how you feel or about how things are? During the same period that this book begins, or the, the you know the marriage 
and the subsequent relationship are one part of that. But also, as you said at the very beginning, you know, this is in many ways primarily a book about your relationship with your, your mother. Roughly concurrence to all of that stuff going on in your marriage, your mom was dying and then died. And yeah. so you had to deal with that as well. And that shapes a large part of that. It does. And, and I think that one of the things that, that drove this book was realizing that my mother had been sick for all of my adult life. And I found myself, once she had died, realizing I didn't know how to be an adult without a dying mother, because my life had been shaped around kind of crisis. And then all of a sudden the crisis was entirely gone, and I was left with with grief, and I was left with conflict, and I kind of had to grow up in a bizarre way after that, because because all of my growing up had been postponed, I guess. The shape of my life had been defined by there's my mother, sometimes she needs really urgent care for very intense periods, sometimes she's fine. Her sickness just went on for so long. And when she was sick, I balanced um, this sort of early writing career against that, and I did, you know, and I was very capable. And then once she died, I stopped being capable, which was really interesting to me when I realized sort of what had happened. I didn't know, I didn't know where I had ended up after all of those years of being capable and taking care of her. I was no longer capable and she was gone. So I had to rebuild in a lot of ways. I had to rebuild myself as a writer. So I think that the book was trying to examine that phenomenon too. I don't think that that's uncommon to people who have had long illnesses in their lives who've dealt with it. Other people have written about it. It's kind of an ex- an exquisite experience. It's not like a sudden death, which is its own kind of exquisite experience. So that was really, that was one of the things that I thought about in terms of, that I think is one of the major themes of the book. And in that rebuilding process, you know, your therapy is another part of this book's architecture. Sure. And one of the things that you grapple with is, as you say, like as an adult, you've never, you had never known a life in which you were not caring for your sick mom. But at the same time, you, you, you know, that means you also never had a model for late adulthood yeah. that was not sickness and decline and all that. And, you know, you talk very openly about having, you know, your, your therapist periodically having to reassure you, you're not going to end up like your mother. Yeah. You, you don't have to live your mother's life. Yeah. I'm not entirely convinced she's right on that point, but, um, Yes, that that is one of the things that also drove me. You know, once once you've decided that you have to live your mother's life, and you look back and you find the resonances, and I have to say that the the those echoes um, of similarity continued after she died, and I found out more about her life before me. So what I learned after she died was a lot more about her life when she was in her 20s. So my period, when I was capable in doing all of these things, taking care of her, I learned more about what she was doing during her 20s and found similarities. She did not take care of a sick parent, but she did try to become a composer. She traveled a lot in Italy. She had wild and tortured love affairs and had a kind of emotional and artistic growth that she recorded pretty interestingly through journals and letters, sometimes through silences, you know, through the letters she didn't answer. So I found a lot more about her in her 20s 
that convinced me more and more that I was just living her life over again. And of course, there's there's the what I assume is a genetic predisposition for her various cancers. So I, wor- I worry about I worry about it, and also maybe don't worry about it so much as just sort of think, okay, I'm just going to handle it differently when it comes when it comes knocking for me. But there were ways in which she modeled also a third chapter in her life that I find inspiring still. One of those things is that she, you know, she was divorced when she was about 40 and was very depressed for a period after that. And then she found herself through her music and kind of in certain ways found herself through the strength she needed to not be sick. So she rebuilt herself in a way that I find admirable and I thought was beautiful and seemed more than anything true to her. That's what I find admirable about it. It was as if she was living with 100% honesty and kind of commitment to what she thought she should be doing as a musician, as an artist, and as a mother. Yeah, there's an interesting parallel between you realizing that, you know, there's this there are these huge facets of your mother's life that you didn't know about, that you didn't understand. And you talk in one essay about how you had divorced when you were pregnant. Right. So your son, your, your oldest child, your son, was born after you had separated. And so he's really never known the life in which his mother and father were a unit, were, were, were a couple. And when you, try to tell him about it, um, you write, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not part of his world. And I have two things to say about that. First, for for those who haven't read it, my children appear in the book, I think of them as kind of a Greek chorus. They keep sort of contextualizing things for me, the way children bring you back to the reality of it's hot outside, let's go to the sprinklers, kind of practical daily stuff the magic of children, the questions that they ask. So they, they are characters in the book. They do keep kind of bringing me around, forcing me to re, re-question things, readdress things. So my son does appear in that way, as does my daughter. Interestingly, my parents, although they didn't divorce until I was nine, because they were both academics, they worked in different states. My dad worked in Texas. My mother worked in Boston. I didn't really know them as a unit too much either. So I share that with him to some extent. You also write about how, because your, your children do appear as those periodic choruses, yeah. those characters, you say you can't write a memoir about them. I can only write my own stories and hope that if I'm very careful, the only person you'll misunderstand is me. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The big caveat <laughs> of the whole book. Yeah, they're characters in my story in this case. And, I, you know, I think that my editor on this book was Nell Casey. Um, and her father is a writer. And he wrote about his children. So it was really interesting to work with her because she had been written about as a child in the book. And we were all really sensitive to what does that mean that you're... You're using your children. I just wanted to reinforce with that line that you just read. I've made I've made them into a Greek chorus. I've made them characters in my book. Mm-hmm. I use only the parts of them that are useful for whatever thing I'm trying to explain in that moment. And so you have to take them with a rhetorical grain of salt. They are these marvelous characters that they are, and then they're also 
full, you know, human beings. They're not inventions. They they have a whole other, you know, 99.9% of their being that exists outside these pages. Yeah, I mean, if somebody reads Landslide, it's like, they sort of know you. Yeah. They really don't know these kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or anybody else. That yeah. Like. And also, he did not know, well, neither of your children knew your mom because uh, she died around the time of the divorce, before your oldest was born. So she, in, she died when he was three weeks old. Okay. So there's also this sense of, you know, the stories that you are telling your children about their grandmother, how that correlates with the stories that you tell, that or you that you hear about your past, your family's past, the sort of sense that it's like, well, okay, this is an interesting story about people that I have heard of, but what do I really know at the end? You know, after the story, you know, what? But we still sort of construct lives out of those um, stories that we compile. I kept being struck by this idea that no matter how many stories I would ever tell them about their grandmother, they would have no idea what she smelled like. You know, I can write until I'm blue in the face using lots of adjectives, but I don't think that you can make a smell. And that's really important when you think about memory because those sensory triggers are so key in memory. Just to use a really banal example, I smell skunk and it brings me back to being 10 years old in Wellesley, Massachusetts because I feel like there was always a skunk in the woods behind our house. Um, you don't smell skunks a lot in New York. So if I'm out in the country and I smell skunk, it's so immediate. And it's a pleasant smell because it brings me back to a childhood moment. To everyone else, it just smells like a terrible skunky smell. At least we know what skunk smells like, the way people smell and the degree of heat they give off. Those are things that you can't, you can't communicate. And they, so in that respect, they, they will never know her. And that makes me sadder than her not knowing them. Although both things, of course, I think about I think about things they say and conversations I have that she would have enjoyed. And too, that I guess in terms of the timing, she would have barely known if she knew at all the partner that you ended up with. Yeah. Who does not appear really in this book no. much at all. That's not a part of your life that is. I'm trying to think of the right word here. Up germane. For up for grabs. <laughs> well, one, up for grabs, but also germane to what you decided you wanted to write about. No, because it's about my mother. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just to go back to what you said earlier, which piqued my curiosity, where you said you read the book and you sort of know you, um, I guess that you mean in the sense that you don't have all the details of my life now and what I look like and all that kind of stuff that this book is so specifically about the things I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it is about compression. You know, it, I focus in a lot of ways on the things I want to talk about. And I also, I feel as if there's a chapter, you know, there's a chapter and it's really about my mother, a chapter of my life. And, and this book is trying to wrestle with that. And in that sense that, I think, you know, with any memoir writer or writer of these kinds of essays, you're not necessarily presenting your best self because a lot of writers are willing to confront like their less than ideal selves yeah. and, and present them to readers. But it is a presentation yeah. of sorts and it is a, a, it is a constructed identity. I think that what's interesting about that for me and this book is that I knew going into this and where I might not take issue, but 
respond to this idea of not knowing me is that I believe in many ways in my in my in the writing I want to do now or in how I understand myself as a writer that the book is at best a portrait of my brain of the way I think of things and in that sense it's incredibly honest I don't think that you can write a book like this without a degree of intimacy, a degree of candor and vulnerability, a great degree of those things. And I think that the vulnerability that I express in my personal essay writing, and sometimes in my book reviews too for that matter, is in that I am kind of laying it all out. Like, this is the way my brain works. What's important about that to me is that when I wrote my first book about my father trying to become a priest, I don't think I fully understood that. I hadn't fully comprehended that. So that book is a very strange patchwork in a way of, I don't know if you read it, but my first book is part memoir, part philosophy, part research about the Episcopal Church, and part lots of portraiture and interview work. All of those things kind of fit together and they kind of don't. And I think that what I realized when that book came out and reviews started coming in was that when people criticized the organization of the book, what I felt like, I felt, I understood finally that a criticism of the book was criticizing the way I thought. <laughs> and it felt much worse than if someone says, you look fat in those pants. <laughs> you know, it was a whole different thing. It was like your brain doesn't organize things correctly or your brain organizes things in such a way that I can't follow you. And so I was really aware of that with this book. And I knew that what I was putting out there and what I felt vulnerable about was that I was just going to let people see how I was not only let people, I was going to try to explain to people how I think and how I feel and how those things relate to one another, how what I feel dictates what I think. And so in that sense, I think the, that you really do know me <laughs> from the book because it's constructed, but what it is, is it's meant to be an expression of that part of my brain working. And brain seems like the wrong word, but it's what I, but it's sort of what I mean. The synapses. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that whole sort of like framework of yeah. connections. Circling back to something that we talked about at the very beginning about the practical aspects of doing this book yeah. this way, in part around the windows of opportunity that exist around raising two children and teaching creative writing. Moving forward, is this a, the form that seems most I'm trying to think, like somewhere between no. practical and amenable. Okay. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. I have I have two projects that I'm that I'm working on now, and both of them are long form. I'm really I'm really anxious to move into a long form and to explore not just an overarching narrative, but also subplots and 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 sub and minor characters and interactions like that. I'm really excited by the vastness of an of a long form right now. So this short essay form isn't my I'm not dedicated to that. I don't mean that I've abandoned it. It's just not the on the immediate. It's just right. not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm working on right now. Cool. Well, it is out now. Uh, it is called Landslide True Stories. It's a collection of autobiographical essays by today's guest, Minna Zalman Proctor. As I said, it's out from Catapult. You should track it down and you should read it. And you have been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you might go to iTunes and rate it highly and review it nicely. 
Uh, that just makes it a little bit easier for other people to find it. And you can also subscribe through iTunes and find out about new episodes as they're posted. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you'll join me again for another conversation soon. Thank you.